Last week, I had to cut my message into two parts. And uh, I said that I'd be preaching part two today. So last week was Hold On to Your Crown. This week, the title of the message is Pillars for Eternity. Pillars for Eternity. And uh, we're going to go to our starting uh, verse from last week, and that is Revelations chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. And this is John the, John the uh, Apostle uh, caught up into heaven, having a vision of things to come, having a vision of the future. And Jesus is talking to him, and he tells him to write down letters to different churches. And this is an excerpt from one of those letters. In Revelations chapter 3, starting with verse 11, I am coming soon. If it was soon 2,000 years ago, I can assure you it is a heck of a lot sooner now. Do you know in Bible school, in our year two class, we're studying the end of all things, which covers not just end time events. The end of all things covers things like what happens when we die. When people died before Christ came, where did the righteous go? Uh, after Christ came, what happened to the souls of those who were believing in the Messiah to come? What happens to our physical body in the resurrection? And so we start examining from Scripture things like that. I got to tell you, it really was a hoot, wasn't it? Bonnie's in the class. It's, it's just exciting. I can't wait to exchange this body for that body. We're going to do some pretty incredible things. But nonetheless, uh, it does also cover things like end-time events. And in the middle of the class, and I, I'm saying this because we just read the words, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Over and over again, Jesus talks about the end-time being like labor pains. Paul uses the same phrase. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that the second coming of Christ will be ushered in by the earth going into contraction, labor pains. And in that context, Jesus said there'll be earthquakes and there'll be rumors of war. And so as we were studying through the Bible shows that when Jesus comes back, he's going to hit on Mount Olives, Mount of Olives, and he's going to set down his feet on Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that the mountain will be split in half. Part of it will go to the north and part of it to the south. And geologically, there is a fault line that goes right through the Mount of Olives. In fact, that fault line connects with every major fault line around the earth, including those that are under the sea, which we all know are the result of tsunamis. And so there are a lot of prophetic scriptures about what will happen when Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives. So much so, that earthquake will trigger earthquakes around the world. The Bible says once more, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. It says that even the constellations will be shaken and stars will start dropping out of the sky like fig trees dropping their fruit. 
And so here we are in the middle of this class, this lecture, and I asked Pastor Tom if he would Google for me what has been the percentage of increase of, uh, of earthquakes. And, uh, and I, I'm sure you've all heard this to some degree or another, but earthquakes and their increase over the last hundred years has been dramatic. Well, just for earthquakes that were an eight or higher on the Richter scale, just taking earthquakes that are an eight or higher in the last 10 years, there's been a 265% increase just in the last 10 years. So I tell you, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, he is coming soon. Can I get an agreement? He is coming soon. Not only has the intensity of earthquakes increased and they've hit a, a, a level on a more regular basis of, of a high high, they're happening more frequently and they're happening in greater number. And this is the evidence of the earth going into labor. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the fact that the earth is groaning in anxious expectation for that new day and the revelation of the sons of God. Jesus Christ is coming back soon, but that's not my sermon this morning. That was just a bonus. <laughs> so he says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That was last week's sermon. And then he goes straight from there and he says, the one who is victorious... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I, I read this last week, and I, when I got to that point, I made a special note. Jesus is saying there's a lot more depth here than what you realize. Don't just listen to this on the surface. There is a profoundness in the Spirit to what I am saying. Whoever has ears, let them hear. You have physical ears? Hear in the spiritual dimension. There are deeper truths, and I want to talk about what it means to be a pillar in, in God's temple. Pillars for eternity. I had to change the title. Would you believe it? I, I, the title was Pillars in, e in Eternity. And as I'm doing research for my sermon, up comes this video game called Pillars in Eternity. I thought, well, that might be one way to make uh, the live stream of this sermon go viral, but I didn't want it to be connected with some game I've never even seen or checked out. It might have demons all over the place. So I thought, ah, better change the title. Pillars for Eternity. Pillars are fundamental to structure. Most of you wouldn't know. Uh, obviously, we have a pillar right in front of us here in the middle aisle. But we used to have a pillar here as well. And uh, when this place was just a huge warehouse and we're getting ready to turn it into a church auditorium, 
everyone decided that the way I run around when I preach, it might be a good idea if we didn't have a pillar right here. And so we had to pull that pillar out, but to pull out that pillar, there are pillars in these walls. And so you have I-beams that go across and they hold up the roof and keep the whole structure together. And um, <clears throat> we had to reinforce the footings to the pillars under the I-beams. If we were going to take out this pillar, we had to reinforce the footings and then put a much larger I-beam to carry the weight from that pillar to that pillar since it would not have a pillar in the middle giving it support. That pillar is so big it's 8,000 pounds just by itself. They came in with two forklifts and had to lift it up in a place to remove one pillar. Pillars are important to the integrity of the structure of a building. They are the load-bearing I-beams of modern construction. They carry weight, and they're the support system to the whole structure. In fact, pillars allow the purpose, the function, and the beauty of a building to carry on. Jesus said, tell them, don't stop what you're doing. Hold on to what you have. And don't let anyone take your crown. And if you overcome, I will make you pillars in the temple of my God. Now this, this breaks down into a lot of depth, but meaningful depth. Not just heady stuff. How many of you know that heady stuff just gets us into trouble? But depth, that is revelation, touches our heart and it changes the way we are. Can I get an agreement? Amen. So are you ready for some heart-changing stuff? All right? I just started by giving you just more of the peripheral and some of the facts, but we're going to get into this here. Pillars in the temple of my God. When King Solomon built the temple, he had two pillars put out the front of the temple. These pillars were made of bronze, and uh, they are approximately 53 feet high. From top to bottom, 53 feet high. They are uh, a circumference of 12 feet or diameter of 6 feet. And the Bible says that being made of bronze, they were hollow in the middle, but the wall, the rim of the pillars were four fingers thick. It's interesting that the pillars were hollow in the middle. And it's interesting that the Word of God says, Jesus says that if we overcome, he'll make us pillars. You see, if they were solid, there'd be no flexibility. If they were solid, they'd be full of themselves. But being hollow, they become channels. And anyone who is usable to God must always be a channel of the Holy Spirit. We must always allow there to be flexibility in our heart. We see that in the very nature of God, while he has a, a, a high standard of morality and where he will judge sin, that same sinner only needs to genuinely repent 
and be regretful of their actions. And we see an instant flexibility in the nature of God. And he becomes this God of great compassion and a God of great restoration. You see, the law is rigid. It was written on tablets of stone for a reason. It's rigid. But the grace of God brings a sense of divinity to the moral law of God. So on the one hand, you have this moral law. It's perfect, and it's impossible in the natural to fulfill. And on the other hand, you have this grace of God that overrides judgment when a person is genuinely repentant. Can I get an amen? How many of you have experienced that firsthand? You've experienced the grace of God? Absolutely. And it's a wonderful thing. But that's just a little bit about the particular uh, pillars, but they were named. And one pillar was named Boaz, and the other pillar was named Jachin. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Because if you Google this, you'll see that there's a lot of speculation as to why one pillar was named Boaz and the other Jachin. One of the theories is that the name Boaz uh, basically means in him is strength. Now, the jury is still out on that. By and large, that's the consensus. But it's not been ratified 100%, but Boaz. One pillar is Boaz, and it means in him is strength. And the other is Jachin, meaning he will, Yahweh will establish. But there's quite a bit of speculation. Why would God have had Solomon name these two pillars? and especially Boaz and Jachin. And as I was going through this last week, and I was preparing this message, the Spirit of God started to speak to me. And this is where it got really, really interesting. I'm tying together the fact that Jesus said, if you overcome, I will make you pillars in the temple of my God. And everything God does in the past is a pattern of things to come. How many of you remember that? When God spoke to Moses, and Moses was building the tabernacle made of skins and cloth, and uh, God said, do it exactly according to pattern, because this is representative of something that exists in reality in the heavens. And so then when Solomon built the permanent house, It was called the temple. Prior to that, it was the tabernacle. It was movable. It was the portable house of God. And uh, so Moses, uh, Solomon builds it according to the pattern. But this is a pattern of things that exist in the heavens. And Jesus is talking about people being pillars in the temple of God. So let's make a connection with the dots. Solomon builds this temple, and one pillar is called Boaz, and the other pillar is called Jehim. Well, in regards to Boaz, we find that his father's name was Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N. And if we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, we're going to see the genealogy of Jesus. 
So if we could pull up Matthew chapter 1, here we go. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And then we know the lineage continues from there right down to Jesus. So let me tell you about Boaz by telling you about his daddy, Solomon. According to rabbinical teaching, it is strongly believed and taught that Solomon was one of the two spies that Joshua sent into the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho was an ungodly place. They practiced detestable things, but it was a well-fortified city. History tells us that the walls of Jericho were so wide that literally three chariots could race on the top of the walls, and they would do that. And so it was a, an impenetrable fortress. In fact, it was so wide that they built houses into the walls. And there was... The Israelites, or the Hebrew people that just come out of Egypt, had a tremendous victory over this empire of Egypt. And they're making their way through the desert, and they come up to the city of Jericho. And so Joshua takes two spies and sends them into the city to examine the city and to just check out the lay of the land. There was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And Rahab, needless to say, as her trade was, saw many, many men coming in and out of the city from other townships. People would come to trade, and some men did the unfortunate thing and would go pay a visit to a prostitute. And she heard the talk of the Hebrew people who were coming out of the land of Egypt and heading their way. She heard people speak fearfully, stuttering, stammering at times as they talked about the miracles that were being rumored abroad about the God of the Hebrews. And here was Rahab who had nothing to lose. Her life had been nothing but a convenience for the selfishness, the lustfulness of humanity. She registered very low on the scale of social elites. Her house was built right into the wall, and it was an easy place to have access to when travelers came in and out, traveling, selling their wares, and doing business, and conducting commerce with the people of Jericho. And as Rahab listened to the stories of the God of Israel, and how this God had taken a people who for 400 years were nothing more than slaves. And he used these people. And he defended these people. And he used them to overthrow Pharaoh's might. If we could use a little bit of imagination, I think Rahab probably in her mind started to think at how her life is very much a life of Slavitude, how she has been used for the advancement of other people. 
And she probably started to draw parallels between her and the Hebrew people. And as she did, she thought about this God who would defend them. Here, Egypt, the great pyramids of Egypt, and all these wonders that made Egypt an outstanding empire were done on the backs of these common slaves, the lowlife. People who had no significance in society whatsoever. Yet a God came from heaven and delivered them and gave them a hope and gave them a dream and rescued them. And now there was such fear in the hearts of men who would ply their trades in the city of Jericho and stop by and use her for a moment of pleasure. And no doubt Rahab in her heart thought if the God of slaves would rescue them, then this must be a good God who loves people and genuinely cares about the well-being of mankind. And the Bible tells us that Rahab protected the two spies. They went to go hide, and next thing you know, here they are in Rahab's uh, quarters, and the king had heard that there were spies in the land, and he even demanded that Rahab deliver the spies to her. These two godly Hebrew sons confirmed to her the stories of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. The God who's not too big to hear the cry of a slave. The God who's not too important to hear the hurting of people that the rest of society would say they don't count and they're not worth anything. And the Bible says that Rahab, at the risk of her own life, made, uh, got some scarlet cloth and tied it to uh, an anchor point in her house and put it out the window and by night she allowed the two spies to escape. Well, rabbinical teaching says that Salmon was one of those two spies. And as you read the scriptures, you'll see that Boaz, whose name was given to one of the pillars, was the son of Salmon and Rahab. This spy who had entered the city of Jerusalem and seen this woman who was a prostitute and saw the tears rolling down her eyes as she heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they saw the remorse. They saw the hope. They saw the longing. They saw an instant love and appreciation in her for their God. They saw that she was willing to risk her life so that these people, more fortunate than her, that God was rescuing, could go on and live another day. And Simon marries this woman because he saw the repentance that was in her heart. He didn't consider the fact that she had been a harlot. She, he didn't consider the fact that she had been used and was known by many, many men. He saw in her a love for Yahweh. He saw in her a love for God. He saw in her the genuine repentance. And like his father, his God, his creator, mercy in him was stirred. 
And he took this woman as his own wife. And God put Salmon and Rahab in the genealogy of the promised one who was yet to come. Because the whole story of Jesus, the whole picture of Christ, is a picture of a God who comes to rescue. He comes to deliver. He comes to restore. He comes to save us to the uttermost. So here's Salmon and Rahab, one of the great love stories of the Old Testament. And they have a baby, and his name is Boaz. Boaz grows up to be a, a fine young man, quite wealthy, and he had a lot of property. And then you have the story of Ruth. A widow named Naomi who her and her husband and her two sons had left Israel during a great drought and had gone to the land of the Midianites. And uh, <clears throat> her two sons married two women from that region. And Ruth had committed her heart to the God of Israel, Jehovah. In time, Naomi's two sons died, her husband died, and she said to her two daughter-in-laws, listen, there's no way I'll ever be able to marry and have another kid and for you to be able to marry him. I can't give you a son. Go back to your family. Go back to your land. Go back to your gods. And the one daughter-in-law, whose name was Orpah, she agreed to leave and she left and went back to her people. Now I want you to understand that the Moabites worshipped the god Dagon. And in their worship to Dagon, they would take their newly born children and sacrifice them in the fire to please and to appease this god. And here was Ruth, who turned to Naomi at the invitation, and she said, no. I understand you could never give birth to a son that could husband me. But Naomi, you're more than flesh to me. And your God has become my God. And your people, whom I don't even know yet, they have become my people. And so Ruth follows Naomi back to Israel. And they were very poor. They had no resources with them whatsoever. Two widowed women. And the law that God had established was that if you were a landowner, when it was harvest time, you had to harvest but six feet or so from the edge of your property, and you had to leave the edges of the property for the poor people to come and to be able to harvest and earn themselves a living. And so Ruth and Naomi uh, Boaz was a distant relative of, Ruth, uh, of Naomi's. And so she said, come, daughter, let's go. And the law of God allows for those that are uh, impoverished. And he takes care of us. We put in work and we can reap a harvest even though we've not sown the seeds. You see, that's the gift of God. It's always grace and mercy, isn't it? Amen. He didn't give them free gifts. They had to go to the field, and they had to work 
but he made provision for them that they could be blessed and looked after as long as they were willing to take action themselves. Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz, she catches his eye, and he notices, now there's a pretty young thing. He notices that more than that, here's Ruth, a widow, and still a daughter-in-law to Naomi. And he notices that Ruth wasn't willing to go back to her land. And she wasn't willing to go back to her people. And she wasn't willing to go back to her God. Her God had now become Naomi's God. The God, the great I am that I am. And Boaz, son of Solomon, just like his daddy, was moved with compassion, was moved with grace, was moved with love, was moved with affection. And he went to the city square and he put down a pledge and he says, if there's a nearer kinsman to Ruth than myself, to, to Naomi than myself, uh, you have this option of taking her and uh, taking her under your covering and being a husband to her. And uh, the fellow who was next in line said, nah, not my cup of tea. And so Boaz immediately took uh, the opportunity to take his mantle and cover Ruth as his own. You see, here's a young man who saw the integrity of his father. He saw the noble qualities of his dad. He saw a heart of mercy. He saw a heart of compassion. He saw a heart of grace. And he honored his father in that he revered his dad for who he was. He revered his dad for the godly attributes and the godly traits that were in his father. And Boaz became a pillar like his dad. And he extends this mercy and he marries Ruth. And we see that Ruth and Boaz are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I believe that one of the reasons why that pillar was called Boaz is because that young man showed the heart and the face of God. Even in an old covenant where all they understood was law and penalty, he showed the redemptiveness of God. He showed the forgiveness of God. He showed the grace of God. I love this story because this story tells us nobody is beyond help. Nobody is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond redemption. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to marry and put his covering over anyone who would be willing to believe in him. And so Boaz became a type of Christ, just like his father was a type of Christ, reaching out to a people who were not his people and showing the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and embracing them and becoming one with her. Like daddy, like son, but like their father in heaven. And I believe that those who overcome 
will be pillars of integrity in the kingdom of God that is yet to be manifested in a physical way here on earth. And so that pillar was named Boaz because God will always give a high five when we show mercy, when we show grace, when we show compassion, when we show forgiveness. Freely you have received, freely give. And Boaz was a replica of this principle and God plasters his name on his temple. Pretty incredible, isn't it? You see, every time you show grace, every time you show mercy, every time you show forgiveness, you are authenticating the nature and the character of your heavenly Father. And you are allowing that incorruptible seed that is in you to flourish and to grow. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Jesus says, those who overcome, I'm going to make you pillars in the temple of my God. Now, the other pillar was called Jachim. And Jachim, there's not a lot to be said about Jachim. But that in itself says a lot. You see, if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 17. In this passage of Scripture... They're taking all the priests and they're assigning them numbers and putting them in lots or groups in the order that they would serve on their given day to serve. And so you could scour through all the scriptures and the only thing you're going to find about Jachin, what is he famous for? He was number 21 in the order of priests who serve. And I thought, God, how does this preach? And this is what the Spirit of God said to me. I see everything. And even the most insignificant, the one who thinks that they've not been noticed, they've not been visible, they've been looked over or looked past, I see the faithfulness of even the quiet. And no one will go without reward. Amen. You see, when you study Jakin, you understand why even rabbi teachers debate what was the great importance of naming a pillar such a magnificent and important piece of structure why would you name a pillar in god's temple jakeem and i love the fact that even the least of these hang on a second didn't jesus say that even the least of these are the most to him you see, church, what this message preaches to me is that soon this world will end and he will create a new earth and a new heaven and a godly heavenly Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and the three heavens will be as one, earth and heaven. You know, those of you that have been here, you've heard me talk about the dimensions of the new Jerusalem 
1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high. That literally takes you into the stratosphere. Satan and his kingdom live, and they are lords in the heavens, the first heavens, immediately encompassing the earth. The day Adam and Eve sinned, sin separated them from the God who walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And because they handled their, handed their mantle of authority over to Lucifer by obeying him, he took up reign in the immediate heavens over the earth. But once Satan has been dealt with and thrown in the lake of fire forever, and once death, the curse of death and everything that brings death and misery is thrown in the lake of fire forever and ever, God's going to refashion the earth. He's going to cleanse the heavens over the earth, and a new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, and it'll be 1,400 miles wide, long, and high. The heavens will be filled with the glory of God and earth and heaven will be as one as they were before the fall what's really interesting is that when you read about the new Jerusalem Revelations chapter 21 verse 22 this is what John says I didn't see a temple in the city. He's talking about the New Jerusalem. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Amen. You see, this New Jerusalem, when you do the amount of square mileage, if you wanted to get a concept of how big that is in regards to the geography we know, it would be a landmass that would cover two-thirds of the continental USA. Amen. It's massive. Extending up into the heavens. Do you know there are Old Testament prophecies that talk about Jerusalem being the highest mountain in the world? And yet, right now, Jerusalem's but a city. It has a Mount of Olives and a couple of other mounts but Jerusalem itself is in a mountain. And it's going to cover this massive square foot area right there in the Middle East. And by the way, did I ever tell you that when you look at the first scripture when God says, Moses, uh, Abraham, this is the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And he starts mentioning the geographical points. It'll go from here to there to there to there. It just so happens to fill an area approximately 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. Jesus is coming back. And we will live forever with him. But here's the point. He said, I'll make you pillars in the temple of my God. That whole city represents God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that God will be in that city. And kings and leaders will come from around the world and bring their wealth and their honor and the 
the productions of their nations as a gift on a regular basis of worship. Wealth is a vehicle of worship. Wealth is a vehicle of worship. That's why it's so polluted in this world. Its destiny and its purpose was always to be a vehicle of worship. And Satan uses it as a vehicle of idolatry and self-exaltation. He has perverted it. But the bottom line is, they that overcome will be pillars in the city of their God. We understand the phraseology of pillars in the community. When you stand faithful, when you push in, remembering that the two pillars that God spoke of were people <laughs> who were just as human as you and me. And here's Boaz, the husband of a woman who belonged to a heathen god that once practiced detestable things. And here he is, his mother once was a harlot. You see, I love the fact that the blood of Jesus erases all the bad and it instills inside of us all that is good. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. And as you and I hold on to our crown, as you and I continue to do good, as you and I continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and show affection or generosity or warmth to the people around us as we live the Christ-like life and don't let go of our testimony, God has made a promise that when He builds that new Jerusalem, isn't it interesting, in Hebrews 11 it says... Abraham, um, Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. God had told Abraham the geographical markers of the land that his descendants would inherit one day. That is his descendants by faith. And Abraham went looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had far more revelation than what we understand. And that city will come down out of heaven and you and I will be citizens of that city. And as we do right and as we do good and as we persist to the end and hold on to our crown, God will use us as pillars in the community, leaders in the city. We will be the people upon whom God can hang eternity. Would you stand with me? Praise God. Thank you. Church, your past doesn't disqualify you. The blood of Jesus qualifies you. I would imagine that in many men's minds, Rahab's past would have disqualified her. But Solomon and Rahab were put in the genealogy of Jesus. 
Because this great God of heaven is the God who redeems the ugly. He redeems the broken. He redeems the regretful. I love the fact that Jesus' ancestry is made up of broken people like you and me. God didn't come out of He didn't send the Savior out of a perfect lineage. He sent the Savior out of a lineage like ours to save and to redeem. And as I conclude this series and this particular sermon, trajectory, are you on target? Are you on course? I want to challenge every one of you. Whether you've been going gung-ho and staying close to the target, hitting the mark, or whether you've stumbled along the way. I think today and every day is a great time to reflect and meditate on the things of God and renew our commitment, our love, and our vows to Him. Not unlike Rahab, at times we prostitute ourselves to the things of the world. We sleep where we shouldn't sleep. We engage with what we shouldn't engage with. But our God is a God who's full of stories of redemption. And He will make pillars out of items that others would have passed up. And I thank God that this grace is such a great grace that irrespective of where we started from, He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And He refines us and turns us into pillars to rule and reign forever in his kingdom. To everyone, as your pastor, as your shepherd, as someone who cares deeply about your personal walk, as someone who carries you on his back in prayer, look into his face. Remember the grace and the kindness. Remember that this is a God who forgives and forgets. And then he takes what was broken and he makes something wonderful out of it. Church, each and every one of us need to set our face like a flint towards the hope that is before us. Run into the arms of a God who's forever gracious and forever caring. Run into the arms of a God who understands and knows how. Run into the arms and into the presence and live for the purpose of a God 
who will redeem a people who were nothing but slaves for 400 years. He'll redeem a woman who was given for the pleasures of others. He'll redeem the broken. He'll redeem the wrecked. He'll redeem the cursed. He'll redeem the outcast. And what men will judge, God will forgive. Let's run after him. Hold on to what you've been doing. Continue to stand in faith. Continue to live for Jesus Christ. Don't let the world pull at you. Don't get off trajectory. Fire up those attitude rockets and get back onto trajectory. You might stumble. You might even fall. But the grace of God will restore us when we take accountability and we repent from our heart. This is a God who will pull us all together and redeem His purpose in our lives. It's never too late. And now is always the best time. Can I get an agreement? While every eye is closed, if you've never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, friend, I want to tell you Jesus died for a reason. Not to set up another religion, but to set up another relationship. God wants to have relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Through His redeeming blood. If you've never asked Jesus in your heart right now, don't wait another week today. Raise your hand and say, Pastor, I want to accept Christ. I want to ask Jesus into my heart. I want to make a recommitment to Christ. I want to serve Him with everything that is in me. Is that you? You've never asked Jesus in your heart. You want to accept Him today as your Lord and Savior. As people are praying about that and thinking about that, I talk to the whole church right now. How many of you want to renew your vows to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How many of you? Come on, raise your hand. If you're inspired to just go gung-ho and live for God, lift your hands to heaven. Come on, lift your hands to heaven. Father, I thank you right now that your spirit has been wooing us. Your spirit has been calling us. And again today, we recommit ourselves for the purpose of advancing your kingdom and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, lift up those that the enemy has beat down. Lift up those that the voice of condemnation has hammered into the ground. Inspire, encourage, even break the chains of oppression over those that the enemy will continually speak to and say, you're not good enough, you would never qualify. Father, shut the mouth of the liar. Shut the mouth of that deceiving spirit. Break that anointing that comes from darkness. Break that anointing of condemnation. And Father, I pray for anointing that comes from heaven, that every man and every woman will not see themselves as they have been, but they will see themselves as who they are in Jesus Christ. Born again, not of corruption, but of that incorruptible seed. I thank you, Father, that it is your spirit in us 
that is always wooing us and calling us and pulling us. Continue, Holy Ghost, to work in our lives so that we could work for you in your world. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Amen.